The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry. Later in the show, we'll be handing over to our colleagues in Asia who have been investigating the case of China's missing mobile subscribers. They'll also dig into what has been going on at TikTok. But we start this week by heading to Silicon Valley, where the economic pain wrought by the pandemic lockdown is hitting both the sweet pay and perks tech staff enjoy, as well as the recent increase in office activism. Gina Chon joins me from her ever less temporary home office bureau on the West Coast. Welcome back, Gina. How's it going? Still living the dream under lockdown. Yeah, so you're still balancing uh, uh, two, two working parents and a, and, a, and a toddler? Yes, and my mom is here as well. So, And we're all cramped in a small uh, Stanford housing apartment. So. Oh, that's just, yeah, the, 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 the dream you're living is indeed one that we all aspire to. Because <laughs> exactly. I'd like to have one less child uh, in, in the apartment <laughs> now. <laughs> No, we, we are surviving as well as we can. And, you know, it's, it's a luxury problem given what uh, lots of people who have to deal with this, uh, the actual causes and the, uh, the effects of this pandemic are going through. So, you know, we, we should be thankful for that at least. Yes, no, definitely. But let's, let's move on to uh, the topic at hand, which is uh, how the, uh, the wonderful perks that, that uh, your, I suppose you, many of your contacts in Silicon Valley uh, uh, may now be losing. So let's just put this in context. So recently we've seen, uh, the likes of Groupon and Yelp, two of the sort of more well-known, longer-standing entities over there, laying off a lot of staff. Um, and we always, whenever we think of Silicon Valley and both startups in general, we think, you know, I think back to the 2000 uh, or the pre-2000 uh, internet bubble, you know, foosball tables, free beer, I think is one thing you mentioned in your piece, free food even, all these perks as well as really good pay. And you're saying that obviously with the, with the lockdown, a lot of not just people losing their jobs, but also all the perks are going to, if they haven't already, going to disappear as everyone tries to work out how to how to how to save money. How, how did that come up? What did, what did you first see that coming through? Obviously, this has been exceptionally quick. This 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 pain that we're seeing across the world. Um, when did you first get a sense that um, you know what the perks are already on the way? If if they weren't already, obviously we work is a good example of where uh, we already saw those perks disappearing for other reasons. Yeah, you uh, you hit it in terms of how quickly the economic devastation has really rippled through um, Silicon Valley and other parts of the country, whether it's New York uh, or elsewhere. And here it's been more noticeable because of all the perks and sort of lavish lifestyle that a lot of uh, tech workers here have been used to. Uh, the unemployment rate in February was even lower than the national average of about 3.5%, which in and of itself was a 50-year low. Right. Uh, so there's been um, a in pretty intense competition, uh, particularly for software engineers and uh, similar professions. So the workers really had uh, a lot of power, at least in the sort of white collar side of the industry. And you saw a lot of employers then compete based on some of these perks, whether it's free meals and snacks throughout the day, um, you know, a lot of sort of company swag, on-site happy hours, you mm. know, meditation uh, classes, all this kind of stuff that they use to try to woo employees. Now, do you get the sense that it was working? I asked that from a, a couple of perspectives. On the one hand, is the, the rather more glib idea in my head, which is, does this this kind of thing actually 
bring the best and the brightest to firms or to just bring those people who are good at what they do, but like the idea of free food and booze. Uh, secondly, also, you know, a lot of the industries I've covered over the years, so whether it's banking, car companies, uh, other industries, they are more and more saying, or had been more and more saying that we've got to compete. Even cement companies actually were saying this, we have to compete with Silicon Valley style things. So we're offering all manner of different perks, whether it's, you know, you can, we only expect you to be here for 18 months. We'll start paying off your student loans instead of pensions, or giving you pensions, all this kind of thing. Um, obviously th that huge dynamic was not just in Silicon Valley, but but do you get the sense it worked in Silicon Valley or, or was it just sort of an extra perk that you got anyway, regardless? Because if everyone's offering it, is it really a perk anymore? Yeah, well, in some ways, um, it was not quite necessary, but you could understand why companies like Facebook and Google offered those kinds of benefits because they're located in the suburbs where there's really nothing around any of them. They have these massive campuses where thousands of people work. I mean, Facebook's so big, they have sort of traffic cops um, that direct you of where, where, which wow. parking lot to yeah. go because it's there's so many of them. Um, so in those cases, like Facebook is known for having also a, a barbershop, a dry cleaner, I mean, almost like a little town, um, again, because it's hard to um, get anywhere else around there. It's not located right. in downtown San Francisco. So in some ways, it, it does help with productivity as well. But you're right. I mean, in, in terms of some of the other companies, I mean, I was just at um, Airbnb before the lockdown started and having one of their free meals that have <laughs> a huge cafeteria with tons mm -hmm. of different food stations and desserts and like lavender flavored water, spa water and things like that. And you do wonder, you know, if, if everyone sort of offers that, um, then what's the differential uh, and yeah. who are you really attracting? But also, that, of course, there, there's a cost to that, which you go into the article. So we stick with that Airbnb example. That food doesn't come cheap for Airbnb. Yeah, it, and it's been astounding for them. I mean, they had planned uh, to go public this year. We'll see if they end up um, shelving those plans. It seems more and more likely they will. Um, but they felt like actually going into this that they were in an okay position. They had about $3 billion in cash. They're pretty capital light uh, business. Um, they also had, I think, access to about a billion dollars uh, in credit that they hadn't mm -hmm. tapped yet. So they thought they were actually doing okay, but you've seen such a huge plunge in revenue because people just stopped traveling. And um, now they've been trying to raise cash like a mad person. I mean, they just raised another billion dollars this week on top of another billion dollars, just uh, I think it was last week in debt yeah. and equity. Um, and I think with with some of these new investors, they are looking to Airbnb to cut costs and the food um, expenses alone. Uh, they had told San Francisco city officials that they spend about seven million dollars a year just buying food that doesn't include the kitchen staff and, and right. everything else. Uh, so it's definitely an expense that uh, you could see go away pretty quickly uh, when, yeah, I mean, that's, when they it, go it's, through it's, this. It's an amazing amount, isn't it? And you're right. I mean, just looking at, um, at one of our colleagues, Anna Shemansky, wrote about this this week as well on on the actual Airbnb loan that came out this week that, that you just referenced. Uh, and the apparently the, the actual yield on that is is 12%, which includes a, a, the paper being sold at a discount. But I think it was the actual interest rate is 7.5% over the benchmark rate. So it's not coming cheap. And the last thing you want to do 
uh, as a venture capitalist is okay you're getting a fair whack back back on your investment but you don't want to see that money then being well as i suppose we were i was about to say squandered on freebies for staff who may now be in a position where where the most important thought might be at least in terms of the new investors you should be happy you still have a job um so that's really going to start i would assume that, that a lot of these perks are already been curtailed if they if, or will be right very soon well assuming there's anyone even anyone there in the office of course yeah, no, exactly. And it really has done a, a number, uh, at least on some of the younger tech workers who, frankly, some of them had never even um, cooked at home or had to eat a meal at home because they just ate all their meals mm. at work. Um, and they uh, were, some of them were joking about, you know, having online cooking classes with colleagues and stuff because yeah. they had never had to fend for themselves at home. Uh, it's tough at the top. But let me, let's, yeah. let's move on quickly. But it's, of course, it's, it's not just, I mean, th th there is a, a rather more um, somber face uh, to uh, what a lot of these firms are doing, where, you know, for example, one of one of the better known outlets, uh, online outlets for delivering food is Instacart. And there's been a lot of talk in the press. And I think you mentioned it in your piece as well about um, you know, Instacart workers are not having enough protection when going in to get food, food for people from supermarkets when people like you and me have gone online and ordered it. Um, and they've been staging demonstrations, just like I suppose some of the other workers uh, were, st were staging demonstrations at Google and elsewhere over the past couple of years. Yeah, so you've seen um, the tables turn a bit where the sort of white collar workers, if you will, um, probably having their benefits scale back as opposed to some of the lower wage workers uh, for these tech companies gaining uh, more power or more of a voice because their services are in such demand. Um, Instacart has seen a surge in, uh, in grocery orders because everyone is staying at home and more people are afraid to go to an actual grocery store. Yeah. But the workers, um, at least initially, didn't have masks, uh, didn't have gloves. Um, Sometimes they felt pressure to uh, because the orders were coming in so quickly, they didn't have time to yeah. wash their hands or do do other sort of sanitizing um, work. So you've you've seen them um, become much more vocal and Instacart and others have had to answer for that, where you've seen them now give out uh, protective equipment to uh, to their right. uh, contract workers. All right. Actually, I also saw um, a couple of reports where. Instacart workers were saying they would often see a really big tip show up on an order, so they go and do it, uh, get it done quickly, take it to the people, and the people then within within a few hours had removed the tip entirely, which which must just make it even worse for them. I mean, there, there are some pretty nasty operators out there, it seems to me, which yeah, is not just about protective equipment. No, it's it's horrifying because, you know, obviously if um, there's such a premium for the delivery slots and it's hard to get one. So if you look like you're paying a bigger tip, then you're more apt to get your order picked up. But but then to take that away from them afterwards is is just really uh, beneath them, you know, even bad behavior. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, I should let you uh, get on and, and, and get back to uh, the wonderful world of, uh, of, of views writing and, uh, and, and toddler taming. Exactly. Um, thanks for coming on the show again, Gina, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Anthony. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong working from home, and I am chatting virtually with Robin Mack, our technology columnist. 
We're going to start out by talking about a little interesting phenomenon Robin has written about. Robin, it's the case of the missing mobile phone subscribers. It looks like for the first time in a while, at least, or ever, the amount of mobile subscribers signed up for, for services from China Mobile and these other state-owned telecom companies has actually shrunk by a fair chunk. Can you lay the, out the mystery for us a bit? Yeah, sure, Pete. So it, it is quite rare for all three of China's mobile carriers to lose subscribers. So that's the one really odd thing about it. And the second thing is that the scale of the drop is actually quite unprecedented as well. So the three of them combined lost nearly 20 million mobile customers in February alone. That's following, you know, a little over 1 million lost customers in January. So there's been quite a lot of conspiracy theories as to what happened. Um, no so doubt. obviously, what's your, what's your favorite one? <laughs> well, obviously the coronavirus pandemic should have had some sort of impact to it. So, you know, the craziest theory is that this actually reflects the true death toll in China, <laughs> which is just, you know, a bit out there. But I think sort of the more plausible explanations, and just to clarify, like no one really knows exactly what's behind this. But the more plausible explanations are that you know, in China, a lot of people have more than one mobile SIM card. So they usually have one primary number and then they will supplement it with data only plans just to stream videos or play video games. So then because of the, the quarantines and the city lockdowns, a lot of people are stuck at home streaming video. So they would use their Wi-Fi and not these mobile data plans. So the theory is that, you know, they will cancel the second data plan. So that's one theory. The second one is that there's quite a lot of migrant workers in China. So because of the quarantines and the lockdowns, they may have had to go back home and use another different plan or their mobile plans have lapsed. So I think those are two quite credible explanations and theories out there so far. Well, I mean, it's just kind of a stretch to me to think that, like, you know, you're starting to work from home or you die or whatever, and you snap into action. And the first thing you do is cancel. I mean, it hasn't been that long, right? But you snap into action and, and turn in your SIM card and cancel your contract. I mean, I've tried to cancel a mobile contract in China. It's not it's it takes a little bit of time. It's not just a question of, like, not paying your bill like uh, the account is open unless you unless you go in and say, you know, I want to cancel my contract. But yeah. the migrant worker one is, is my favorite, I think. But regardless, I mean, this kind of feeds into a wider theme of some concerns about how the telecommunications and mobile networking push is going in China. I know you looked at Huawei, you know, CTE. There are these other companies that are trying to sell into the increased spending on, on as China rolls out fifth generation mobile technology, which is supposed to spill over into all these related sectors, companies that are making Internet of Things that want this fast bandwidth and obviously, you know, smartphone and, and hardware providers like Huawei. And yet Huawei's results did not look that glorious on that front either. What is happening there? Yeah, so Huawei is really interesting because, you know, this company has been targeted and blacklisted by Washington. So since last May, you know, a lot of U.S.-based tech companies have to go through special approvals and get special licenses in order to sell to Huawei. So that has really, really hit their handset business. So Huawei phones are just starting to really take off in markets like Europe and the US. But because they now don't have access to American tech, including Android and, and Google Maps and whatnot. So their smartphone business abroad has pretty much been, you know, it's just come to a standstill. So they did report one of their slowest earnings growth, I think in about three years. So at least they do have, you know, their China home market 
to count on. You know, it is one of the biggest tech markets, you know, in terms of smartphones and, and mobile infrastructure spending. But like you said, even that doesn't seem to be a huge windfall for Huawei. And I think one of the big reasons is that many people had been expecting a huge 5G infrastructure spending in China for 2020. And it's kind of logical for that expectation just because, you know, China Mobile and China Unicom, China Telecom, they spent so much on 4G. So when Beijing started making, you know, a lot of their 5G ambitions quite public, companies like China Mobile and their investors were actually quite worried that they were going to be sort of pressured to spending quite irrationally on CapEx and then sort of building out new base towers and whatnot. But so far, it seems that, you know, all three carriers, they've started reporting, you know, sort of their CapEx figures for this year. And it looks quite restrained. So China Mobile, by far the largest, they reported that their CapEx is going to rise just 8% this year compared to last year. Can um, you put that in context? Like how much were they spending on 4G? How much of a bump was yeah, that? So, yeah. So, I mean, like in total, all three, you know, the CapEx this year would be around $335 billion. China Mobile spending $180 on CapEx. 2014, they spent $215 billion alone, and it was like a 20% rise. So for sure, the numbers are not as crazy as people feared it would be. And it looks like what they're doing is that, you know, rather than just have one big year where they'll just roll out everything all at once, it looks like for 5G, they're sort of spreading it out over two, three years. So the peak spending will be, you know, this year, next year, and 2022. So it doesn't look like there's just going to be this giant windfall this year, at least. I mean, that's quite interesting because there's a lot of questions about how China exactly is going to stimulate its economy this time around. You know, I mean, in 2008, after the global financial crisis, they laid roads, they put in subway systems. There was this huge kind of physical land-based and well, airports as well, infrastructure spend, right? Like a lot of cement, a lot of steel. But they built out most of the shovel-ready projects, as it were, that time around. And this time, it's not quite as easy to find, you know, places that don't have highways serving them yet, cities that really need a subway system or towns that really need an airport. So a lot of people are leaning towards, you know, Internet of Things, all this all this stuff is going to require 5G spending and technology investment, and we're going to get a big bump there. But it looks like it might be kind of disappointing if what you say is is true. Yeah, um, and I think a especially lot of if the, it's spread out when like the urgency yeah. is like right now, and you're telling me like it's they're going to be taking their time and and keeping it even. Yeah, um, I mean, I think you, a lot of the the um the spending, like you said, I mean, it will probably go towards sort of the low tech section of this IoT and 5G spending. So we're talking about data centers, right, where it's actually, you know, if you're just putting up servers in, in a large plot of land, that's not too bad. So I suspect that, you know, there's going to be a lot of data centers being built as opposed to really rolling out commercial 5G networks all in one go. Yeah, well, I guess it's, I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, part of the case for having a lot more data centers is, you know, that there's going to be artificial intelligence and all these new applications that are going to be running that are going to need more storage and processing power, right? But like 5G was supposed to be underlying all of that demand, right? Like, you know, self-driving cars, all this stuff was supposed to be dependent to a certain extent on this super high quality bandwidth. Most people don't really desperately need 5G to run their smartphone games these days. But anyway, there's definitely like Internet of Things applications that wanted, you know, really robust bandwidth to work. So it'll be interesting to see whether this trickles down into the rest of the market and how. Anyways, regardless, uh, Robin, I'd like to thank you for talking to us. I'm looking forward to, to following this issue with you going forward. Great. Thanks, Pete. 
I'm now joined by Alec McFarlane, who's going to chat with me about the travails of the all-singing, all-dancing app TikTok. Alec, I don't use TikTok. What is it? Okay, uh, so TikTok is a social network that allows users to share short video clips of themselves, whether it be singing, dancing, kind of generally fooling around. I mean, the thing that is quite unprecedented about this app is that it's owned by a Chinese technology company. Um, and the global success of this app, I mean, it's crazy. This this app has been downloaded something like 2 billion times so far. No kind of big Chinese technology company, whether it be Alibaba or Tencent, has achieved anything like this kind of success abroad. And presumably the pandemic is feeding into this, right? Because everybody's trapped at, trapped at home. How much growth have they gotten out of the lockdown? Do you know? That's right. Yeah, a significant amount of growth. So in February, if you look at data from a uh, data analytics company called Sensor Tower, the app was downloaded 113 million times across. I think that's the the App Store and, and Android. And that is I mean, that is the record that makes it the most popular non game app in the world in February in terms of downloads. All right. So let me guess certain American regulators are not that excited about that statistic. Is uh, yeah, that fair? You could say that, yeah. I mean, th this is the issue. I mean, with sort of great success comes comes great scrutiny, especially if you're a Chinese technology company operating in the States. So back in November, Reuters reported that the US government had launched a probe into TikTok's data collection practices. Now, TikTok has kind of come out and said that, you know, every, everything it does is above board. They've basically said that they store their data locally, depending on the market. And they've also denied any kind of like allegations out there that they might censor particular content that, that Beijing dislikes. Let me ask you, I mean, so there was there was similar pressure on, on the Chinese acquirers of Grindr, which is a gay dating app. And in that case, people were worried. They pointed to the fact that data had been transmitted you know, to China, that like Grindr collected some extremely sensitive information, not only about people's sexual orientation, obviously, but also things like HIV status. You know, the, the founder was uh, quoted, you know, saying things about how he didn't support gay marriage. It seemed odd that he was running. This but I mean, with TikTok, it's just a bunch of people twitching, right, and acting foolish online. What what sort of dangerous information is this app collecting that should make regulators nervous? I don't think so much that it's 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 more just that it, it it's collecting it's collecting information on on American citizens, which is always a bit of a, a prickly area for for regulators. But I mean, also the interesting thing about TikTok and and ByteDance's Chinese owner is that. If you look at the what Facebook has gone through just in terms of data privacy, data protection, and also uh, protection of minors, these are all issues that TikTok, if it's not facing already, will face. And on top of this, you know, the, these problems that Facebook has, you have the issue that TikTok is also owned by a Chinese company. And if you just kind of look back at, you know, the last kind of 18 months or so, amidst the, the US-China trade war, this is really a, a big target for the Trump administration. Well, they seem to be doing okay. I mean, they're hiring. It looks like they're planning to, they're on this big hiring spree. I think I just saw a story saying they're adding like 10,000 headcount. Is that in China or abroad? Or what are they doing with that, that big surge? I mean, the majority of that, it, it seems, according to the report, is global expansion. This is kind of based on the, the, the success of TikTok. Now, you can kind of bet that all of these people won't be dedicated to 
ensuring the, the kind of future success of TikTok. What ByteDance is basically doing right now is, is gathering a lot of data and it's really sort of understanding from that data what makes non-Chinese netizens tick, right? So with that, they can kind of try and understand what foreign users of its app enjoy doing, what they like, what they like sharing, etc. And that should help it hopefully sell a global audience its, its next hit app. Well, I guess with China being turning into a political football in the American election season, how they treat ByteDance and TikTok will, will tell us a lot about how this trade relationship is going to go. Alec, thanks a lot for talking to me. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, folks. That's it for our show this week. I'd like to extend my gratitude to Robin Mack, Gina Chon, and Alec McFarlane for coming on the show, and of course, to Pete Sweeney for some deft Hong Kong hosting. We doff our hats as ever to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner, here somewhere in the New York region, and Sharon Lamb and Jamie Lowe are over in Asia. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Please do subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you pick up your podcasts. And do join us again next week for another edition. <laughs>